Welcome to Smith Weekly Discussions, an occasional program for our readers and listeners of Smith Weekly Research. Please note this program is a private discussion and everything contained herein is for entertainment and educational purposes only. With that, we hope you're in a comfortable position, along with your favorite beverage, to enjoy the discussion. We remind our audience to examine the show notes attached to each of our shows to better understand how our program functions. Before we get into our discussion, we want to say thanks for questions coming from our audience of Smith Weekly, including Jared W., Brent S., and Mike P. Greg Hall is our guest today. Greg is Executive Director and CEO of Alligator Energy, a uranium-focused explorer with exploration projects in the Alligator River Uranium Province, Northern Territory, and also uranium project interests in South Australia, including the Big Lake Uranium Project and the newly acquired development stage project, Sapphire Uranium. Alligator Energy also has Nickel Cobalt Project in Italy. The company is listed on the Australian Securities Exchange under the symbol A-G-E. Greg, welcome back to the show. Yes, thank you very much, Andrew. It's good to be talking to you. Yeah, it's good to chat. Well, Greg, what have you been up to? You've uh, quietly acquired the Samphire Uranium Project. Maybe just give us an overview, location, maybe talk about the potential and then also how much Alligator paid for that asset. Yeah, certainly. So look, we uh, you gave an overview of our assets, which is great. Thank you very much. Um, during this year, since we last talked, we acquired the Samphire Uranium Project in here in South Australia, where, where I reside, around 47 million pound uh, at a low grade, but with some very distinct high grade cores and potential expansion. The things that attracted us to Samphire were that, that it, um, it is in South Australia. It has the, the right location to have a uranium deposit imminently um, developable because uh, of the South Australian experience, both at a, uh, a level of em employees, consultants and experience in this state, but also with the government experience, but in approvals and uh, operations. It's got a significant resource. Um, while, while the overall grade is low, if your readers have a look at our releases and look at the grade cutoff curves and tables, there is a significant high grade core which does hold together very well. And so that attracted us because that means you've got a, a grade that's um, uh, attractive to future production. It's ISR amenable, so in-situ recovery can be utilised. There were some test, was historical test work done to help prove that. And there has been good improvements to ISR processing techniques in the last five to 10 years, which we think will add value here. There is significant exploration upside. Once the original company found the two prime deposits, in particular the Blackbush one, they focused on that, took it forward into potential test work rather than continuing a lot of exploration, but there is exploration upside. And also from our perspective, what's very interesting here is in South Australia, the, the in-situ recovery projects have really been owned by individual companies. So you've had your own process plant, you feed into that process plant from the well fields, et cetera. A concept that we've started to talk about is um, the potential for a hub and spoke here, where we produce it at uh, Samphire, an intermediate product up to a loaded resin, and then either on-sell or toll treat that at one of the existing plants in South Australia. Now, this is common in Wyoming, it's common in Texas, it's common in Kazakhstan, it's just a familiar thing in the ISR fields around the world, but it's not common in South Australia. So we think this creates some opportunity for, let's call it a, 
smaller ISR field like we have so far to maybe come into production a little faster. That's an overview of Samfire. And we have a certain amount of work underway to test a, a range of these opportunities as we go forward. What was the consideration for the asset? And maybe you can pin a value to it roughly for the audience. Um, and then just talk a little bit more about the high grade core of that. And then I think you underestimate the location of that asset as well. The two deposits are very close together, can be developed together. I think they're 15 kilometers apart. Fill us in on those items. We've commissioned a, a range of work. In fact, we started late October into November. And the work we've got underway includes uh, really continuing our restart of engagement with the community and environmental matters, doing some baseline work, uh, looking at the rehab that's been completed. We've largely done that work. And we're about to meet with the, the Department of Energy and Mining in South Australia to, to ensure they understand that the rehab that was intended to be done by the previous company has been completed it's to the satisfaction of the landowners and that we can now move on to next future plans for exploration. Engaging with the community in Wyala and the Indigenous group that's resident there, the Mangala, is something we've already started. So we uh, have initiated that work as well. And, and as most people who have worked in this industry know, this work is of paramount importance. If you don't do this, then you really put your project at risk. So we've really started that work and, uh, and need to get further on the ground for some of that. We're looking at the, the uh, resource expansion and, and exploration potential. So the, the high-grade core at Blackbush is of interest because um, you know, according to the grade tonnage curve and the table that we have published with that, um, we think that looking at around a three to 400 ppm cutoff, in fact, 400 ppm cutoff is the, is the primary level we're looking at, that provides something like about 5,400 tonne of in-situ uranium or 11.3 million pounds at about an 810 ppm, so 0.08%. Now, that's starting to be a, a comfortable grade for in-situ recovery. And so it holds together well. We've had a good look at it from a perspective of the resource model. And so that's the sort of size of potential inferred resource. Remember, this is all inferred resource at the moment that we believe we can start to use for our scoping work. And that, that's what we've initiated. In terms of upside on that, the expression review work we've done has shown that that resource is held together well. We know where it lies in the, in the different sediments and the Kanaka beds, which is the, the, the sediment permeable beds um, that, that leach the easiest. Um, holds something like about 90% of that resource. So that's why understanding the resource, understanding location and potential is important. We also know there's some potential for slightly better grades at depth at the lower part of the beds or into the, the weathered saprolite geology, which is at the bottom. So we're going to be doing some work on that. We also know some extension to the higher grade portions going to the west and the northwest. So we're, we're about to do some work or plan some work on that. We also think that there's the very high grade intersections in this core, uh, you know, around 3,000.3%, 3,000 ppm, that sort of thing. So we, we are going to be doing some work on can we enlarge the area of better grade uh, within this core. So that, that's what makes this quite interesting. Then, of course, there's all the learnings on Blackbush, which we've, we've been looking at in detail and we're about to work on, which you can lay over to Plumbush and not only Plumbush the area in between the two, there was um, minimal drilling along the channels uh, in between the two areas. And even though there was good EM geophysics between them, 
what the previous company, Soundfly, did a little bit of startup work on, and we're going to continue, is passive seismic. And I know you might have heard from other similar ISR companies that passive seismic is now a technique that's really showing up to be useful in looking at uh, channel locations and boundaries of depth. So um, we're very keen on doing that. The big advantage for our projects there is it's all shallow. It's 60 to 80 metres deep in the Blackbush area, a little bit deeper at Plumbush, but that's quite shallow for, for an ISR operation. That's the sort of work we're doing on the, the exploration resources side. The exciting work is on the ISR potential production side and, and the plan with our um, processing review and opportunities was to look at in situ recovery, what's the potential now with new technologies to improve that? What's the potential for an open pit, which could of course take a lower grade potential cutoff on, on larger volume? And, uh, and, and how do these fit together in, in uh, potentials for a full scale plant on site with the, with the total resources or an intermediate product? So that review has been undertaken. We've, um, we're publishing some results and they're showing some interesting opportunities. First of all, the historical leach work did show the uranium leached well. And we are going to redo some of that leach work because we need to get some fresh eluates some fresh uranium solutions because the new work that's been undertaken by ANSTO in particular in Australia on new resins and looking at chloride, these resins operating in chlorides, remember we have a saline environment here, shows that the ability to extract uranium through from chlorides is now much enhanced. So um, we want to redo a series of test work for the new resins using ANSTO and we're planning the drilling to do that as we speak so that we can get into that next year. What it does do is show that the, we know the leaching works all right, we've got to prove the new resins, but we believe from other similar projects that they will work well. So what that means uh, overall for the project is we're now running models to determine what size of resource do we need to be able to do a standalone operation and what can we save by doing uh, an intermediate product. You, you really only save the drying and product packing section at the end, which is, which is quite small. But you're starting to see that there's a good picture here in terms of putting this together uh, on the basis of a variety of uranium prices, which means that uh, we think we've got a sustainable project, which will have a fairly good payback uh, given the right price. Now, we're still working the numbers on that. We, we, it's not going to be uh, you know, economic at the current spot price. But once you start talking a 45 to 50 to $55 price, now you've got a project which has cheap capital, it's well established, you've got to get approval, and then you can get into a production operation. And that could be either a self-contained production operation or a potential intermediate product. So they're the basic numbers that we're coming up with at least. We're still doing some work in and around them, but it's essentially uh, about an 810 PPM or 0.08% grade about 900,000 pound a year ISR operation. We want to do more work on them, but, but that shows us that we really have hit on something. Now that is just Blackbush, but that doesn't even encompass the Plumbush deposit or any exploration in between there. And talk about the, uh, and I'm just doing some rough math here, so I need you to correct me, but the consideration for the project uh, was around 3.5 million Australian dollars. We paid 4.3 million Australian, but 0.7 of that was for cash, right? So we, we acquired um, 700,000 cash, just under 700,000 cash. 
So yeah, the consideration essentially we paid was, as you say, about that um, 3.6 million uh, Australian for the project. So, okay. so we issued, yeah, so issued 4.3 million Australian shares. We required cash as part of that. And we said that in that quarterly recently, that helped us uh, with our cash balance, which is which has negated the need to, for a capital raise during this year. We'll, we'll now plan that in due course with our information in the sample. Back to the project capital costs, you know, yeah. rough estimate. What do you guys prefer? I mean, are you pretty much coming up as an open pit scenario, very close in cost compared to an ISR operation? What do you think is better, you know, from a permitting standpoint? And then also, if you guys are going to go the route of some kind of a toll arrangement with another facility, what does that do to the capital costs? Well, look, open pit is feasible, but it's high cost. Essentially, because you're in shallow sediments and those sediments are, are fairly um, you know, very permeable, that also means they're very weak. So if you need to do an open pit mine down to 60 metres or 60, 70 metres, you've got a very shallow pit angle. So you're taking a lot of overburden with that, if you like. So based on that, we think that's not going to be the preferred option. The second reason is we're on, um, if you like, these salt band flats adjacent to the Gulf, Spencer Gulf in South Australia. And uh, we're a few kilometres from the side of the Gulf, but as soon as you start talking about you've got then um, significant areas of groundwater and you've got to manage that groundwater, you've got to evaporate it, control it, do that. So, so the groundwater might become an issue in terms of an open pit and we know it's a cost. And then you've got the landforms. You've got a landform where you're putting waste material, you have to landform it into a different environment, you've got an open pit, and you recover that and rehab that later. So we think the approval will take longer with an open pit. The cost is higher at the current stage, uh, based just on looking at Blackbush. So we don't think it's the preferred route, but um, you do get a higher recovery. You, you can look at beneficiation opportunities at the front end of that, might make it uh, more attractive and there's a range of uh, possibilities with that from of course the Marinica type upgrade through to ablation that's been doing some work in the states and those sort of things so so we haven't yet had a look at does that improve that, that uh, open pit option in the, in the future or is it better for example with a centralized plant to have a multiple open pits for, for different areas so we'll do that work but at the moment while it's feasible ISR is preferred in terms of the capex for a fully integrated ISR plant versus just a loaded resin, we only save in the order of, uh, of around eight million, eight to nine million Australian, which is you know, six to seven million US. So it's not a massive saving in capital. I, I personally thought it might have been more, but many of your listeners would be aware that there's been some great advances in modularised. Uh, uranium drying and product packing plants and containerized plants, which have been done both through the company here in Adelaide, Adelaide Control Engineering, uh, plus others. So uh, that back end of the plant is not as expensive as in the old days. And so therefore, um, you don't save a massive amount of capital. The biggest volume of solutions you've got to handle is all up front, from the well fields, into the plant, through the different concentration techniques and then onto the loaded resin. That's the biggest volume of of materials, therefore you've got the biggest engineering that goes with that. The back end of the plant, you're at a small volume, you've got less cost for engineering. That's a logical thing, the back end of the plant should be smaller capital. There is some saving, we'll have to determine whether there is a real advantage in doing that. Adelaide Control is certainly a good name there that can uh, provide those solutions and let's hope Glenn sharpens his pencil for you and hopefully you guys can get a good proposal from them uh, for potential solutions on the project. Sounds great. 
And how mm -hmm. about the uh, your comfort level? Just ISR process there as far as how the deposit looks in terms of being very low risk, ISR amenable deposit type. And then can you also talk in addition to that time frame? What do you think to get this thing advanced? And when you guys do get to a point of construction, how long would that take? So can you maybe cover the de-risking and the project advancement, community licensing, all that good stuff. And then from a construction decision, what's your thoughts on building and, and then ramping up and being in production? All right. So we, we haven't um, really published anything on this timing as of yet, but um, my opinion and gut feel on the timing, having my previous uh, previous role achieved a fully approved uranium project in Western Australia, is it's a little faster in South Australia because there's familiarity with ISR processing, ISR mining. So the Beverly mine under Heathgate has been operating really since uh, 1998, in fact, 1996, the construction. Uh, the Honeymoon Uranium Mine was approved and permitted and operated for a period of time, and it's now ready to go again. Uh, the Four Mile Project, which is a separate project but associated now with Heathgate, that was approved and, uh, and allowed to go ahead. And this is under bipartisan governments, both in South Australia and federally. So South Australia has got a very good record of, of approving projects like this. Having said that, this would be the first ISR project in a different location. Those projects were generally all on the eastern margins of the Flinders Ranges, out of the Chrome Embayment area, the Chrome Basin. And so all in similar areas, there is more known about the groundwater, those sort of things. So to be, to be totally upfront with your readers, this would be a new area. The, the government will want to have a very, very careful look at hydrology, at quality of groundwater, even very, very saline, and how you recover that, how you intend to rehab in the end with your well fields, et cetera, et cetera. So, so there will be more work to do on that. Look, I, I think um, uh, improving a uranium mine in a period of two to three years uh, is what it takes. I think um, We'll learn a project with at least three and a half years, close to four, but three and a half, and that was in the government that had never approved the mine. Um, it, it should be in that area period of two to three years. It will take a fair amount of work to get the environmental baseline work underway and undertaken. While there's been a little bit done, that will require some effort, uh, but we think that's the time frame. In terms of construction, with these, these sort of plants, once you've raised the funds and you've got the, the overall design principles going, they really can be constructed within a period of about nine to 12 months. Uh, they're, they're not, they're not um, massive plants. They're, there's not massive engineering. And the fortunate thing is we have infrastructure close by. And that's one of the big advantages this project has over some others. We're, we're 20 kilometres south of Wyala, which is a central regional town in the mid-north of South Australia. It has a, a population centre of experienced um, people. Um, Cymec Mining, which took over the Aria Mine Ore projects, has been operating there for many, many years, and, and they uh, they uh, employ a lot of local people, and who all live in Wyala. You also have both the Olympic Dam and uh, and Oz Minerals Carapatina projects, which are um, to the north of Bonham Hill. They employ people out of these northern towns, but they also engage in businesses out of these northern towns. So there's an experience base already in that area. To summarise, in terms of approvals, it's a newer area, but ISR is experienced in the state, but it should still take some time up to about three years. Uh, construction and engineering is, is quicker because there's good knowledge base in the state and uh, uh, to be able to do that. Um, because it's a new area, we've got great access to infrastructure and people, 
but we'll have to do a lot more work with community because they haven't had experience in working in and around these projects. You would say probably that it's really four years is probably a pretty good estimation. Yeah, well, with my old age hat on experience in uranium, I'd say at least, because I want to be fair to your readers and, and not try and pretend that we're going to be in production in two years. Uh, I think these things do take that time. If you can speed it up, if there's a way to make it happen better and faster, fantastic. But, but I think you've got to allow at least a good four-year period with, a, let's say you need a supportive enough market to raise initial funds. You don't necessarily need your final price available at the start, but at some stage for a board to commit the shareholder, to make shareholder value out of a new project, you've got to have the right pricing in the market that's going to support these sort of projects. And as we've seen from similar projects in Australia and overseas, you need that 50 to $55 price in contracts, not in spot, but in contracts. Yeah, good point. Well, it's very interesting and very compelling, even at four years. And of course, we always want to encourage the uh, under-promise and over-deliver attitude here. So even with this type of time frame, it's still very, very early on the time scale compared to many projects um, yes. in other places. So it's South Australia, I wouldn't say other parts of Australia, but certainly South Australia, it's maybe not as fast as jurisdictions like Namibia and Africa, but certainly South Australia, by a long shot, I would argue is much better than Canada, probably even better than the US. So I think it looks uh, compelling and a good setup and looks like the timing could come out you know, really nice, Greg. So, well, let's take a break and let's move over to uh, just your broad thoughts on the uranium market here. We've seen the equities come up a little bit. Uh, mm. Thoughts on where we are in the market? Is this just another peak in sentiment for a moment and then we'll settle back down? Or do you think after a couple of false starts over the past couple of years, you think we're finally here? What's your thoughts? I think we've now had evidence of how closely people are paying attention to the Iranian market. Um, the first time we saw this was around 2018, mid-18, there was a, a pickup in price and in equities, and, uh, and that, that focused people's attention to say, is this the time, is this what's happening? Um, we saw it earlier this year when COVID impacted and uh, or people got distracted around all sorts of things, and Iranian price took a bit of a hit and, and equities certainly did. Once it became known that some major producers such as Cameco and the Kazakhs had to restrict or limit production for a long period of time, you saw the price really pick up again. And that's because people know how closely balanced it is now. And, and, and now we're seeing it again. Look, um, Alligator is a small company. And while I've got lots of contacts in the industry, um, our small team, we don't have a lot of time to do lots and lots of market analysis. So I tend to listen a lot tend to listen to people who have been in the industry for a long time, who have produced uranium, who have developed mines, and who have a, or who have a very good analysis technique. They might not have a long experience, but a good analysis. So as an example, um, I, I listened to a, a Cameco presentation about the market um, in around mid-year or maybe August, September. And, and it was a good sounding out about where the spot market is at the current time. And it really, seems like there's a consensus that the spot market now doesn't contain a lot of excess stocks material. Uh, that seems to have been gone, it seems to have been used up, it's either been purchased into funds, which means yes, it could be available, uh, or, or it's been purchased by utilities which have been avoiding uh, committing the long-term contracts for a while, which we know the US has been doing. So in other words, there's been a soak up of many, much of this sort of short to mid-term material available. 
And uh, and while I don't know whether it's true, I know I heard the statement that look, most of the spot market is now just excess production from producers. So that was the first time I'd heard that statement for many, many years, um, really, and since pre, pre-tsunami days. So that created some interest for me because as once you know that the spot market supply is a different makeup, then it becomes interesting. We know there's been a, you know, excess supply coming out of uh, riches because of um, low SWU prices. The SWU prices starting to change. We know there was a lot of excess stocks in UF6. Now all of a sudden UF6 has been hard to get. And that's all happened over about the last year or 18 months. So again, this is what I hear from, from people that I trust and I'm, I listen to in the market. The other thing we now know is that this year there's going to be about 120 million pounds of primary mine supply. And the demand this year is about 187 million. And that deficit's been there for some time. Uh, I think last year was still about 130, 140 million pound production before that maybe a bit higher. But there's a, there's a limit to how long you can run like that and rely on other stocks. Uh, if you're a primary user of uranium and you see that there's 180 million pound being burned up and there's 120 million pound being produced, you've got to realize sometimes, shit, I'm going to have to lock in supply on a long-term basis. Now, the issue has been around many of those utilities in doing that is the uncertainty around are some other aspects of the market. So, for example, the issue around the, uh, the 232 uranium petition, which was now nearly three years ago. So that first came out you know, three years ago. That impacted uh, utility thinking in the States. Um, that morphed or created, came into the nuclear fuel working group. Um, with, with not, not a lot of the actions undertaken, but nonetheless, there was uncertainty around where this was going to go next. Um, and then, of course, the most recent has been the Russian suspension agreement. Uh, and, and that now has firmed up a restriction of Russian material into the US market. So that creates a bit more uncertainty as to what US utilities can, can go into or contract into. Uh, and then the most recent, of course, was this, um, I have to get the terminology right, the American Nuclear Infrastructure Act, which has just been passed by the Senate. It's got a few, obviously, you've got to go get, get the budget approved and get appropriations and things like that. But nonetheless, you're now talking about an act which allows uh, the Department of Energy to purchase up to 120 million US uranium per year, US produced uranium. And it's got to be US produced uranium by certain producers only. While it's not declared there, it's well known in the market that these producers aren't going to sell for a cheap price. They're going to be trying to make sure they get a well-contracted price up into the to the $45 to $50 range is what we believe. So all of those uncertainties over the last three years in the US market in particular, which is still one of, one of the biggest buying markets, has meant that there's now some certainty coming forward. So I think every time you see a, an, a, something happen in the market, like a, a drop in production, the drop in production early this year in 2018 and a similar thing. Now you've seen an enhanced buying opportunity, which is going to lock away material in your strategic reserve. All of these things have a blip up effect in the market. There's no question you've got to have long-term buying from utilities, purchasing at reasonably supportive prices for long-term production. And we don't have that yet. But the signs are we're heading towards uh, the opportunity for that to happen. 
So I, uh, I stress that a lot of these thoughts are my opinions based around my experience in the market, but also what I've been listening to, what I've been seeing. So, but essentially, we're on a path. But when people say, is this it? I say, well, when utilities are buying long-term contracts and settling them at 45 to $50 to $50 a pound, that's the path. We're just not quite there yet. Greg, we had, call it uh, seven years of long-term contracting, of notable long-term contracting volumes from 2005 to 2012 last cycle. And the amount of long-term volume was a range of a really close to 1.5 billion pounds over that period of long-term contracted, not spot. Do you think that we're going to see something similar this cycle, maybe equal to or greater than somewhere around that number this time around? I'm not familiar enough with the numbers, but I'll, I'll just give you my thoughts around the, the last time versus this time. Last time there was a lot of buying by, by China to thwart its, its rapid expansion in nuclear. There's no question about that. And uh, while they impacted the market and bought into it, they very quickly established a relationship with the Kazakhs to take a good portion of their production right across the border, essentially. So, so they, they pulled themselves out of the market a bit because, um, and, and that's that's to be expected. They're a big buyer. They really need to manage how they buy. Those contracts were set, um, you know, some 10 to 12 or more years ago. So uh, whether there is new buying by the Chinese in the form it will take, that'll be interesting. So there's no question they're a significant buyer, but they have understood markets much better and they, they now manage how they buy much better. So whether that will have a big bearing, I'm not sure. US utilities and other significant utilities that will need to restock around the world will start to look at the risk going forward and should we uh, buy more earlier while the price is still lower or should we wait and then buy later? I don't know whether, again, the learnings from before will lay over. There was, uh, when, the, when the spot price shot up and the long-term price was up around $80, $90, uh, the US utilities did back off their, their buying. Um, the, uh, some of the Japanese and others did back off and said, let's hold here, there's a bit of a panic in the market that's gone up so fast. So there was a bit of backing off from the long-term buying when it went almost like a bit of overreach. So it depends. The total volume that will go into utilities, I think, will depend on how the market reacts and how it moves. If it's a good a pickup and a steady pickup, then the buying as you required year by year is likely to occur. If the price stays quite low and tight, but there is uh, there's plenty of supply, you might find utilities will overbuy a bit because they can get it at what they consider a reasonable price, 40 to 50 or, or a bit more. If the price really spikes up, they'll probably hold back and, and wait and see. Um, there is certainly uncovered demand similar to the level we saw back then. That's the interesting point. There's certainly plenty of uncovered demand over from 2022 out um, of a similar level to what we saw back in the pre-tsunami days. Um, so how the market buys will depend on how the market reacts a little bit. It might be a cop-out though, uh, Andrew. <laughs> <laughs> well, I just, you know, the 2005, 2006 and 2007, you know, it was over 200 million pounds per year each of those years. So, you know, 600,000 pounds just really out of the gate. And obviously we saw what happened to the equities during that time frame. You know, the other part of it too is, do you think that there'll be a return 
like the U.S. and the European utilities, even the Japanese, you can exclude them from this because they have a different style. And the Chinese yeah. certainly do as well. But the Western utilities call it or just the you know U.S. and European utilities. And I might be a little bit off on this, but I want to say they typically enjoyed four to five years of inventory. If they're going to go back to that practice, if that still exists, maybe they just believe in just in time which is silly, as you know, and, and COVID has pointed out how silly just-in-time can be for a lot of industries. But if they go back to the practice of, hey, let's keep four to five year of inventory on the shelf, that's a lot of volume, Greg. So right. what do you think on that? Do you think that has their thought process has changed regarding inventory and having less on hand? You know that the, the stockholding policy of, of different areas of the world are different. So, so the the Japanese quite often had five to seven years or more inventory available, and that, that was part of the issue of the tsunami. Uh, Europe tends to be a higher level of inventory, probably four to five plus years. The US had the shortest inventory. They got down about 18 months at one stage in, uh, in the very low price times prior to 2005. And that's one of the reasons why there was a big market run-up, because they did get down very low. Now, I've heard that the current inventory levels in the US are getting down, but they're not down to that level. I heard they're two to three years at the current time. Remembering that they do a fuel reloading about every 12 or 18 months, depending on 12 months to two years generally, because they do it in the fall and the, and the spring. And so it depends on how far ahead they, they need that to be comfortable with. If they stay at the, the two to three year sort of stock level they are now, then we probably just see that we're buying based on demand going forward. It depends whether they, they want to increase that for a bit of certainty. And, and as again, I say that will depend on how the price runs up and how fast it runs up. The other buyers around the world, what, what's also changed a little bit is back in those previous days when there was some new construction, uh, quite often the companies that were building had to purchase the uranium, et cetera. But what's changed in the last 15 years, and a lot of new uranium, new nuclear plant construction comes with five years of supply. So in, in Saudi Arabia, in a lot of places that are building new reactors, um, whether it's put in place by the Koreans or Russians or others, it'll come with a, a period of four to five years of supply material. So that does take a little bit of the burn off uh, the new reactor builds and how much demand they'll make. But I, I think that the, um, I'm going to change my mind here. I, I don't think there's going to be a, a massive rush of buying. I mean, I, I'd love it if there was a mistake and the price shot up and that happened. But I think there will be a steady level of buying to make sure that they maintain the, uh, the level of, of uh, comfort that the utilities need. If they're at two to three years and they're comfortable with that, they'll buy if they can maintain two to three years. If they don't think they can get it from the spot market, then they've got to go out and do long-term contracting. So, so I think the US buyers will be the thing. The thing that's unknown and the big unknown in this game right now is what China might do. They have to keep building and starting up four to five to six reactors a year. They have an aim now to have um, be carbon neutral. They have to have 200 reactors running, as in their own number that is, to be able to do that. Uh, in you know, what's a fairly quick period of time, 250, 260. So therefore, they are going to have to have a lot of uranium supply. How they achieve that and where they achieve that is going to be the interesting point. If they decide that there's some risks and they come back in the market in a big way, that will influence the buying pattern of every other utility in the world. So there's an interesting game to play out there yet. 
Yeah, I think the U.S. is a little bit shyer than that. I think we have, I'm going to say we have about a year left before they start, some of them start getting a little bit itchy to See? pull the trigger. Okay. I think we're at a year before they really start have to think about it. That would be the start of them thinking of those various utilities going into that. I want to say roughly at the two-year level. So they're mm-hmm. not critical yet, but I want to say the start should happen within one year. And if anything, if current action is any telling issue, we might start seeing that, but, but we'll see. Mm-hmm. And again, I'm not necessarily opposed to this taking longer. I think people will get exhausted again and sell stocks, but and that's okay because we'll be there to buy them at lower prices. Mm-hmm. But we got some time left. I would say within a year, they're going to start getting itchy in my opinion. Let's go ahead and unless you got something else to add on the bride market, I want to come back to Alligator and then I want to talk about some of the other projects because there's some other key projects that are important here that I want to discuss. But how about the share structure here? Can you just outline the share structure where we are post acquisition of Samfire? When do you see you might need to raise capital? And I also expect with the current share structure, Greg, that there is no concern for any kind of share consolidation. We issued a lot of shares at a pretty low price to acquire the Samfire project. I, look, the, the price we paid for Samfire of about eight cents a pound is very reasonable for, for what it is in the stage. And I think that uh, we had to issue a lot of shares to do that because we were at a low price level in the market. And notwithstanding that, so now we've got over more than two billion shares on issue. And I, and I always have uh, great comments from investors and people I know in the industry from overseas, in the US and Toronto. Uh, talking about these penny dreadful Australian stocks. I understand what they mean. But the, the other thing is it's, our, it's what our market cap is. We're up, we're up around the 17 to 18, 19 million market cap for a small company. We have issued a lot of shares to acquire assets, and that was a, a major strategic change from the board from 2018 on. Now, having, having said that, um, by picking up uh, new shareholders, we've expanded our base. A lot of the smaller ones will gradually drop off, but uh, we now have a... a you know, we had a new significant shareholder until recently, so we, we've expanded our breadth, which is I like. We want to do that a little more. In terms of um, uh, the capital of the company, that the, the well, let's talk about the cash first. The 1.2 million is what we had at the end of the last quarter. That was with the acquisition of Samfire and that cash, and that really helped us. Not only that, but right back in March, April, when COVID was hitting, we really analysed what we needed to spend and how we needed to do things. And your, your listeners will know we're a very small company. We've only got five primary employees and we use external consultants and advisors that I link us into as we need to. So we really had a good look at how we tighten our cash burn. And so we've got our cash burn down to fifty dollars to $60,000 a month Australian. Uh, revised our office settings, did all sorts of things, and we've been main, able to hold that as we needed to, um, and that holds the assets as well. Now, we have to do some work to make value for shareholders, and that's what we've started to now plan to do. We're restricted on getting in the ground in Arnhem Land and uh, in Big Lake Uranium in South Australia because of COVID restrictions on travel, and in particular, not able to go into very remote Indigenous communities due to the risks there of health. So um, many of the states in Australia have supported exploration companies by allowing them to defer payments on fees and licence fees, et cetera, which we've been very, very appreciative of, but not just ourselves, but others have managed to hold our assets well in doing that. Now we've got to make some moves to spend some dollars and, and make value. So we have the geophysics programs over Big Lake Uranium we want to undertake. 
We have work on the ground at, at Samphite I've been outlining. We're starting to plan now to do next year. And in Arnhem Land, a new new tenement package there in, in Nublet North, we've got some initial groundwork on the next season, which starts really from about May or, or June onwards. So we've got 1.2 million cash now. We will want to raise some money uh, in due course. We don't have to rush it. We've got the time to consider and get the right messaging out there in the market about what we want to do and how we want to do it. So we, we'll, we'll plan that for this stage into early next year. And we also do have people now interested in what we're doing and how we're doing it. So we'll, we'll, we'll look at opportunities as they arise in terms of, of raising some uh, capital. In terms of the shares and consolidation of shares, look, we, we've been asked this a few times. I'm a believer that if you do a consolidation, it's got to be for a reason and add value. And usually that's around a deal. So if we're doing a deal or a significant joint venture, which is going to add value, a deal which is going to add value or something like that, you do a consolidation at the same time, that eliminates the risk that you're getting drifting down a value during a, just a standard consolidation. So we would much prefer if we do intend to do one, and we haven't, haven't got a plan to, if you intend to do one, we would do one around a significant deal with adding value to the company as well. And, and I haven't talked about that yet, but in line with conserving cash earlier this year, uh, restricting our exploration operations, what we did is we transitioned our team very quickly back in a matter of a few weeks and said, right, let's now start to look at other external opportunities. And uh, as I've said before, when we talked a year ago, we, we were looking at a range of areas. Our preferred target areas are certain countries in Africa, within Australia and in the USA. So we have moved our team into looking more at, at opportunities externally. Um, yes, we had to bed down and then acquire and announce and get the Soundfire project underway, but that didn't, has not stopped us looking at other external opportunities as well, which we're continuing to do. So um, we still think it is the right time for an, uh, a company with experienced Iranian people in it like ourselves to be looking at some further assets for acquisition or for joint venture or for or bringing into the fold in some manner going forward. And these might would our preferences resource assets, but they might be interesting exploration ones as well. Yeah, I think that makes sense. I think it makes sense to take a look at some of these other assets and, and you guys already have an interesting portfolio that has uh, early stage exploration projects, potential development project, and they're all, I would just remind the audience, you know, Northern Territory, South Australia, it doesn't get much better for jurisdiction in Australia uh, other than those two. So a fantastic setup on that. Um, Talk about for a moment the, uh, by the way, the GNA burn rate is very low. It's pretty obvious in looking at your guys' financials that you guys have done a nice job on keeping the money uh, tight as the market uh, provides for better compensation and so forth as you guys advance and grow the company. I think that's merited. Just briefly, the new shareholders since mm -hmm. the, uh, the acquisition, do you see the, the new shareholders coming in as supportive? Obviously, this was a not a listed company that you guys acquired, but do you see them as supportive and what do they bring to the table? Well, um, there, there was something like about 1,300 shareholders um, and a wide range. Uh, with um, Many of them, of course, were in Uranium SA, the original company during the last boom and stayed on until uh, Uranium SA spun out Samfire as an unlisted entity just to be able to hold it more cheaply, which was a smart thing to do by the, the uh, Uranium SA board back in 2016. So that was good. But what it means is you've retained in there, because it was very difficult to trade unless it shares, of course, 
retaining there the, the some of the key players in uranium sa both the, the directors of the company the, the previous management plus the, the long-term investors in that and they've come across with that into alligator and of course you've got lots and lots of smaller let's call them retail shareholders who are there now already we, the evidence we've seen is that uh, and i've met with some of the primary new shareholders in alligator that have come across from soundfire they have a great interest in uranium I understand that the market's now shifted and moved. They're supportive in terms of uh, very keen on what we might do in taking the Sandfire project forward and want to be part of that. So while there's some who have taken the opportunity in our in our price increase in the last two weeks to uh, to take a take a piece of the action, so to speak, um, uh, most of them are still in there for the long term. What we're pleased about is bringing in these shareholders who were unable to trade shares for five years. They've now had an opportunity to do so in a buoyant market, which, okay, it's on the first of it, it's not of our making, it's a US Senate decision, but nonetheless, about being the right place at the right time. We acquired this asset at the right time, we brought in new shareholders, and we've been able to give those shareholders an opportunity to either release, uh, um, realise some, some value from their shareholding, uh, and come back into us if they want, or to stay with us. So we're happy that we've expanded the base. It is going to diminish a bit more. Many of those smaller shareholders will, will drop off and look for other opportunities. But I'm talking already to the main shareholders and they, they understand our team, our skill sets, our plans for Sandfire, and, uh, and, they, and they're keen to see us take it forward. If and when we do want to go out and raise capital, we have a wider range of supportive shareholders, is my view. And I think that's a big value for the company. What was the name of the company this company was prior listed during the last cycle. Is that right? Do you remember the name of the yeah, company? It was, called, it was called Uranium SA. With no space between the word Uranium and SA. So it was Uranium SA. It was listed, uh, I'm trying to remember, it was back in 2007 or six or something like that. Uh, Russell Bluck was the primary sea uh, explorer and CEO for many years. They brought in another CEO, an old friend of mine, Alistair Muir, to, to run it for a while when they looked like they were going to advance the Blackpool's project and we're doing the in-situ trials and things uh, and then of course post the tsunami uh, had, had to back off and, and really just hold the assets. So Uranium Assay was the name of the company and they spun out Samphire Uranium Limited holding these uranium assets in about 2016. So the most recent board of uh, in particular Martin James was a director and, and Lindsay Carthew have uh, uh, both maintained their interest in Alligator and uh, and uh, while they might take a few profits as we move up, we're happy to have them come on deck as we expand. I'll leave it to the audience to look up that prior company and the history there and how it performed, et cetera, during the last cycle. Let's move on here, just switching gears, uh, refreshing here. Italy assets. Hmm. What's the plan here, Greg? Uh, are you guys going to look for a JV if you can get one, an outright sale of the project to somebody else who's more focused uh, towards you know, cobalt, et cetera? And if you guys are going to keep it, are you guys going to do some work on that? Is there, you know, substantial carrying cost to keep that project? What's kind of the plan on that? Obviously, because we know that uranium is the first and foremost focus for alligator. You're correct. We are having a look at, uh, and we've been, we've been quite open about this in, in our announcements. Um, the, the Piedmont project is, look, it's very interesting because um, finding an area which has got historical high-grade nickel in it, in the heart of Europe, in a, in, in, a, in a country that does have a mining pedigree, albeit an older mining pedigree, and there is quite a number of mines up around that region, uh, is, is interested a lot of people. This year, with COVID especially impacting Northern Italy so hard, there was a, a year of 
being able to do very little. But what we have done is we've achieved the, the drilling permits. So by uh, the, earlier in the year, we got notification from the, uh, the Piemonte region uh, mines department that the uh, drilling permits have been approved. So we're able to drill. Um, we didn't want to and couldn't really get on the ground to do anything this year. Uh, it would have put too many people at risk and, and other things. So it was not the right thing to do. But we have that ready to go. We've, we've actually lifted up a bit more information. While we haven't gathered any more real on ground information, we've done a bit more behind the scenes work. And we have a detailed information memorandum which has gone out to very targeted enterprises. And these are both uh, nickel interested large companies around uh, that have interests in Europe, other countries that don't yet have interests, companies that don't have interest in Europe yet in nickel, but are interested, and also the cobalt interested groups, those sort of companies we know are interested in future cobalt offtake for battery minerals. So we've gone out with a very targeted distribution. We've got two engagements underway. Now they've been slow because again, a project in Northern Italy or people are interested in the assets and the potential for nickel, especially deeper nickel and cobalt. And it's a difficult time for them to look at do we want to make a significant investment in Europe. So we're having those discussions and that's underway. We are happy for either a good joint venture partner who wants to come in with us or someone who wants to be interested in taking this through into a, uh, a list in any in itself. We've set up the structure of the company such that it would be easy to list it elsewhere, whether that's on AIM or the TSX or within Europe. So that structure is set up already with Italian companies. So we've got a, a flexible approach to this. We would certainly love to do some deeper geophysics, on-ground deeper geophysics and drilling um, to enhance the value of this project, because we think that's what will do it. But it's not something I want to put um, my shareholders' funds into purely by ourselves, because I think our focus is on uranium and our focus is on uranium at the right time. We're buying projects, but there is value in this Piedmont project. We want someone to help us realise. That's really the bottom line. Moving on, we'll leave that one, but I do think that there was some value that can be had there through one of those vehicles. But let's move on to another topic, Olympic Dam. The expansion, uh, they're not doing it now, but as you know, the copper price is moving, probably amenable to higher prices over the next couple of years. Talk about that project because you know it well. Do you see expansion happening if we reach, call it all-time highs with copper, which isn't that far away really? But if we see that over the next few years, do you think that that will start to change the, the economic attractiveness of expanding that and, and spending that capital? And of course, we know this will take years to do, so I don't really see it as a threat to the uranium market, but talk about that expansion and their decision maybe to not go forward with it right now, or if there's something deeper than that, maybe a, a social issue or something else. Okay, well, Olympic Dam, well, BHP um, and their team here in, in Adelaide and up on site, they keep pretty mum about this. They don't, they don't say much about it, okay? Um, also, with my role, various roles with the Chamber of Minerals and Energy and things, I've got to be a little careful about talking about it too much. But in essence, they did some significant work over a period of three to four years looking at heat leach ability of, of uh, a, a range of areas in their, their project zone, but in particular the south east zone, which is the old A zone, they, they, they now call it down the southeast zone. And they had a good look at ability to 
crushed ore to a certain size to be able to effectively leach the copper. My understanding of that was reasonably successful. And they also had to have a good look and do a massive amount of drilling underground in that southeast zone um, of the project. So this is where the grade is a little lower. So when I was at Olympic Dam and we were first mining up the northwest areas, which were higher grade, smaller zones, it, you know, you're mining sometimes between three to four percent copper. And this southeast zone is in the order of two to two point five percent. Um, but it was much larger. There was continuous um, intersections of copper over 100, 150, 200 metres. So they've had a good look. The, the, um, one of the concerns, as I understand they have, is the, the continuity of the mineralisation uh, is variable. And by variable, it's not just the copper. Uh, what's critical in Olympic Dam to making money is you've got to be able to take copper through a concentrate, leach out uranium from both the concentrate and the tails to add value. Then you've got to put it through an effective and efficient smelter because you've really got to recover uh, and clean off the copper as, as much as you can to get rid of any radioactive byproducts plus selenium and two other things. So that's why they go right through smelting to refining on site. So, so the issue here is you don't just look at copper in the ore. You look at copper sulfur ratio, how much sulfur is there. You look at the radionucleides, including uranium, etc. So it is, very important to treat this ore as a multi-commodity material, not just copper, not, and of course it's a byproduct or, or associated product uranium. And my understanding is that to really get the, the processing stream right, you've got to have a pretty consistent feed. If it's too variable, then it becomes a real issue and a real nightmare in terms of costs. So I think they've just got some concerns about it. At current time, the knowledge of that southeast area is it consistent enough to be able to put through a good solid process route with the smelting and refining and get us consistent? So they've chosen at this stage to stay with the more selective long hole open stoping techniques. Now, I don't think that's a mistake. I think that's a fantastic opportunity because when you've got a nine or 10 million hundred annum ore feed coming out of long hole open stopes at the sort of grade of two to 2.5% or more, that's fantastic. <laughs> that's a wonderful, copper opportunity and copper project. So I, I think they've got a great um, project uh, and ability to produce copper at that. There is, um, there's no significant um, social matters that I understand. They have to really consider the, the bore field water, the Great Artesian Basin water they're taking and, and alternative supplies. That is something that uh, the whole state of South Australia and the government is looking at. But in essence, my understanding that it's being able to extract Moldy commodities and a consistent basis at the right price uh, becomes a, a critical concern to uh, to the project. Um, and look, I, I I've always said this to when I give some advice to small startups often on things. I always say to them, look, you've got a single commodity that extracts easily. That's going to make you the most money. Um, grade then becomes if you can get it the right grade, that's great. But if you've got multi-commodity projects, it is always more expensive to make money out of the commodity. That's just an old rule of thumb that I have. Yeah, good points about what's going on there and so forth. Obviously, you and I both know that a high price can certainly fix a lot of those problems, especially at a project like that, just because of the profile. Yeah, it's interesting they didn't do it. I think it certainly helped some of the perception of this uh, uranium market, although I think people fail to realize how long it would take to actually get that implemented, the expansion. Um, I certainly believe that the copper price will drive their decisions going forward as they continue to complete that project. 
And look, there, there is deeper. There's certainly, we, we, I'm assuming, I don't know in detail, uh, but I'm assuming they're looking at a variety of mining techniques, whether it's block cave or sub-level cave or any sort of methods like that will cheapen the mining costs in larger areas. But that, what that means is you've then got to have a confidence in the, in the quality of ore that you're going to get out on a consistent basis. And, and sometimes that's where the selective mining of an open scope technique becomes a little bit better. But look, let's see. I, I know that, look, um, you know, they're producing, what, seven to eight million pounds a year. If they expanded, you'd increase that by another seven to eight million pounds. So it certainly would have an impact on the market. But I agree totally with you. Uh, it's an impact that might, even if they committed to an expansion, it might not happen for something like five or six years at least. So it's a, a long way down the track. Yeah, certainly. Well, let's move on to Big Lake. Talk about that project. Talk about it in terms of the priority for Alligator at this point, what the plan is for maybe next year and how that slots in with the new acquisition. Yeah, look, it's, it's two priority exploration targets we have now. The first, and they're both equal, but the first one we can get on the ground for will be Big Lake. We've been trying this year to get a geophysics crew out of um, West Australia, which has been very, very hard to do. Uh, because we've had borders shut down and crews have had plenty of work with the gold and nickel boom in West Australia. Um, it's been very hard to, to attract crews. There's been some other crews in uh, New South Wales and Northern Territory, but it's been difficult to get a, a crew at a reasonable price to do what effectively will be a few days' work um, doing uh, airborne EM over our region of Big Lake. And we want to do that because we, we need to identify these uh, potential channels that, that as, as you this is my understand, we've got an area of oil and deep oil and gas, 3,000 metres deep, but the shallow sediments to 100 to 150 metres from the surface, which are air formation sediments, similar to the sediments around Beverly, uh, Honeymoon, Heathgate area. And uh, there's evidence of uranium that explorers found 10 years ago, two to 300 ppm on the margins of the basins. And so where the oil and gas fields are, and so we want to look down the hydraulic gradient and where there could be an accumulation from fluids. And the key work to identify this is where are the channels and then it's fairly cheap to go and drill them. So the issue has been, uh, we've had the funds, we just haven't been able to get a crew to get up there. And that's been drama. But we're ready to go on that. And if we can get that underway early next year, we'll, we'll, be, we'll be jumping into it. And now we've got borders open. Um, again, it looks like we'll be able to get some action on the ground. So that's that's going to be critical because that will that will identify the channels that we want to drill. Now, as part of the work, we've got um, uh, been engaging with the two indigenous groups in the region um, who have got experience in, in resources industry because of the oil and gas and other mining. And so we have draft agreements in place, and uh, and we've been working through them. But again, at a slow pace because those groups haven't been able to meet easily because many of them are scattered and. Uh, uh, but we've got those agreements underway and good and relationships are, are good they've got an understanding that this is a long-term game um, one of the critical things we have to get good understanding within the community indigenous groups was an oil and gas company that's been there for many years they want to drill a new um, a gas well they could have that in production in 12 months or eight months what we're talking about is very early stage um, uh, exploration drilling which might find something, might find nothing. But find something that could lead to a second stage drilling and then maybe some resource drilling and then over a period of years to a resource and then over that to an approved project. So having that understanding of the differences between this um, early stage mineral exploration and oil and gas drilling was a, a lot of work for us this year, but we, we've done that. And so that, that's the draft 
agreements have been formed on that basis to, to benefit all around. And we certainly, because of our experience in Arnhem Land and our, our massive employment up there of Indigenous people, we want to employ local Indigenous people to help us with the work as soon as we can get on the ground. So we're keen to do that. We are ready to start next year. We've got the funds and so we've been keen to, to get into that. So, so Big Lake is a target for us. It's a, and as you're aware, most of the large in situ uranium fields in the world are associated with oil and gas basins. And no one's had a decent look up here at the Cooper yet. We're very keen. Let's move up to Northern Territory here. Let's talk about uh, Alligator River region. What's the plan on that front? Uh, where does that slot in on the priority list and any plans for 2021 on that one? Yeah, well, the new areas that we've got there, the Narvalek North tenement areas, we've agreed a, a full agreement with the Northern Land Council and the traditional owner groups, the, the key groups in that region. You know, we signed an agreement earlier this year, but of course, because of restrictions of access, we haven't been able to get on the ground. We did a very, very quick trip with our team to visit the TOs, uh, check our camp out that's in Arnhem Land a couple of months ago, make sure it's in good shape. But it was impractical at that time with the onset of the wet season to be able to get on the ground and work. But our plan there is uh, an, an initial period of some geophysics. We've, we've got interesting intersections right on the boundary of our tenement package where there was some higher grade uranium found by uh, the company Devex. And some of those structures run into our ground and we want to follow them up. This area to, to the north of the old Nublet mine has got a lower or, or narrower thinner is the right word, I think, thinner level of overlying barren sandstone. Uh, a lot of areas south of that have got a, a, a thickness of two to 300 metres of sandstone in places. So this is thinner and in some places non-existent. So it's an easy location to get onto the ground and to start some of this initial geophysical work to identify targets. And, and uh, if your listeners are interested, you put out some, some work um, early in 2000, in fact, the mid-19 onwards, but earlier this year as well, on the Alligator Rivers province. And the total um, strategic review we did really showed us where these basement structures or basement uh, outline linked with potential structures that come to form up these deposits, such as Ranger and Jabaluka. And so we've now identified on our plans that we've published, the key areas around this Nublet North package that we want to start to identify. And the U40 prospect is one of them, Higher grade prospect there, and that you know it's got a six percent uranium over a, over a short intersection there. And so we want to identify them going further into the north of that province and get on the ground. Um, our initial work there would be able to get on the ground from about May on, May June, because of the wet season there, which runs really from November. You almost can't get on the ground there because of the river floods from November through to about May. So we want to start doing that work then. And again, we've started as low key because. Look, Arnhem Land has got the best opportunity in Australia to find large high-grade deposits. I mean, you know, 0.5%, 5,000 ppm uranium in uh, 100 million pound deposits. If you want to find that in Australia, you're looking in the Northern Territory Arnhem Land region. So it's the best place to look for those deposits, which will run 30 to 40 years. But it's the most expensive exploration. You've usually got barren rocks over the top. It's, it's uh, quite isolated. Quite often you've got fly and fly out, uh, helicopter rigs to, to move drill rigs, etc. So it's really a place that we'll focus a lot more attention on when you've got a much buoyant market. So if we've got good advance at sound fire, we're finding some things at Big Lake, the uranium prices up, there's you know, investor interest into to future projects going forward as old projects shut down, like Ranger and shutting down. 
then that'll be the time to raise some good funds and do some significant work. The work we've done has been fantastic. Others are doing work in the area. There is going to be high-grade deposits found in this region. I'm confident there. I want us to be the ones to find at some stage. So you've got the development project in South Australia. You've got an exploration project in South Australia. And then you've got kind of an elephant optionality alligator <laughs> river area that will have a lot of appetite for capital and, and exploration work in a higher uranium price environment. Talk about Jabaluka for a moment, because I know you're familiar with that. Um, yep. Do you see that this Jabaluka will ever go forward? And obviously at a $50 plus uranium price, there's certainly going to be a, a stronger push from Rio to potentially look at that. But that's a project that's obviously many, many, many years out. What do you think? Do you think it's something that's never going to happen? Or do you think it's something that will be refreshed in a higher uranium price environment? It's a project that will stay on the books. I think that not just Rio Tinto, but the federal government, the Northern Territory government, they, they understand a, an oil resource, a 0.5%, million pound plus is a very, very valuable strategic resource. So I, I'm confident it will stay on the books uh, as a resource amenable to future development. But it will need to be developed with the local Indigenous people with the, not just with their blessing, but I think with them being involved. And that's the only way it will advance in the future. I don't think the local people uh, are in the frame of mind that they want to develop it at all. I think they're in the frame of mind that they, have, um, they feel they've been impacted a lot by Ranger. They want that rehab done. They want to get their land back to where it was and, and be comfortable with that. The Jamie, um Aboriginal Corporation has been successful in obtaining funds from the federal government for tourism ventures for the Kakadu region to really enhance their value there. And I, I, I wish them all the best in, in being able to achieve that. I think that's a, a great asset if they can help do that and keep tourists coming in and interested people coming in. But as we know, um, and as is experience, and when you have a significant mining operation that's well run, well environmentally managed, managed with local community, that can add a massive amount of opportunity to not just local community, but to, to the state revenue, which then helps to feed into back in the local. So I think if there's a belief in the future by the local people that the mine can be run safely and securely and environmentally well, maybe they'll want to get involved in, in looking at it, but it's not, it's, that's not now. So I don't think Javaluka is medium term. I think it's very, very long term if, if there's uh, the ability to work with the local people. Do you think Rio would ever be interested in selling it? Or do you think that Rio is going to stay in the uranium game with some kind of foot in the door? Obviously, when a potential major mining companies looking to come back into the space, do you think that uh, they would be looking to sell that to someone else who's presently in the sector to stay? And then lastly, just on Alligator here before we wrap up, Alligator River concessions that you guys have. Can you just speak to the size of the concessions that you guys have up there in comparison to maybe say some competition? Is there anybody else up there that has good holdings? Talk about the size of scale of what you guys have. All right. So in respect of Jabaluka, it's very hard for a very significant mining company like Rio to on-sell an asset like this, which has a lot of community interaction obligations with it to just anyone. Uh, I'm, I'm, I'm absolutely sure that there's lots of people trying to approach them about it, but I believe that a large company will know 
that if they sell something on, that's really not the end of your legacy here. You can be blamed for selling something on. You can be blamed for selling it to someone who then does a bad job of maintaining it or doing something. So, so they will be extremely cautious if they're interested in selling about who they would sell to. So that's that's the first thing. Whether they will sell or not, I have no idea. I think though that as a strategic asset, it will remain. It just depends whether there's some way and opportunity to make that work in the future. I absolutely agree with you. There will be people who will be trying to look at that asset with a view of development in the future. But I think for the reasons I stated before, there's got to be a certain approach taken and it's going to come from the local people as much as anything. So I think Jabaluka, yeah, I, I wouldn't say that it'll be easily viable from Rio at all. In terms of our other land holding, uh, we've got the second largest um, land holding in, in the Alligator Rivers region, um, second to Vimy, who took over all Cameco's ground. We are looking at other opportunities that are up there. There is other land holdings by other groups that are, are now less interested, you know, because of the, the, ex, the expense of holding the ground and exploring the ground. So we may take the opportunity to pick up further ground in the region. We have good expenditures that we put in place on a lot of the ground on our projects, and uh, that's, man that's enabled us to hold them and maintain the assets adequately over this period of time. But we'll have to start spending some money on, on some of these, and we need to. If we're, if we're not going to spend, uh, we're not creating value for the shareholders. So, so we need to be able to get at least some funding in on key targets and, and get them underway at some stage. But it's sort of accepted by the NT government in particular that you need to have a supportive price to be able to see the uh, exploration funding come in. They've seen it in Northern Territory on lithium, they've seen it on, on gold, they've seen it on some graphite, they've seen it previously on iron ore and they might be seeing it again. So they understand that the money flows come with the, with the market to some extent. And they've, they've been reasonably amenable to make sure that we can keep a level of work going to enhance the assets but know that there's going to be a time when we really need to get into good exploration. And, and as I said, I think that's going to be in the peak of the market for Arnhem Land in general. Greg, talk about the two major shareholders that are on the books of Alligator, McCollum and also uh, Tolga. Maybe just talk about why they're here and who they are. And then also with respect to management's uh, shareholding and your shareholding as you guys move forward with finances etc will you guys be looking to participate and increase your shareholding the mccallum group is uh, in combination there's a, a number of holdings but they've been a major shareholder with us um, really since about 2013. Uh, for, for those listeners who don't know the mccallum group was established primarily by uh, two people peter mcintyre and john main peter mcintyre was the um, CEO of Extract Resources when they found the HUSAB, the big HUSAB deposit in Namibia. And John Main was on the board and he was a, a, a director of exploration with them. Um, John Main's got a long pedigree. He used to head up all of Rio Tinto's exploration in the Americas, that's North and South America. So he's, got, he's a very experienced explorer. And, and um, they of course sold out when, when uh, CNNC took, took the HUSAB deposit. So, they set up McCallum Group as an investment group into resources and they do a variety of uh, investments in different commodities. But John was keen to bring McCallum into Alligator because of its land holding and, and the expertise in our team in Alligator Rivers. And that's not just exploration expertise, but our engagement expertise and knowledge base of traditional owners and, and things like that. So McCallum brought in a fresh set of eyes to the exploration, really uh, worked with 
the team to bring in that critical R&D work that we did with CSIRO to, to, to form the basis of this, this strategy we have now, where we link up the Archean basement structures with Seagull Northwest sort of structural zones uh, and linking them to potential exploration. So, so McCallum really bankrolled a lot of that and, and they've had a lot of faith in doing it. Um, now, John retired from the board as executive chairman in early 18, and that's when the board asked me to come into the company. And, uh, and that's when we elected to, to move the strategy on to, rather than pure exploration Arnhem land, let's expand out into other avenues, both for ease of access, you can only explore up here six months of the year, and, and for other opportunities. So that's why we started to expand out. Uh, McCallum are still supportive, while they they haven't necessarily come into every raising we've done when we've had placement opportunities. They certainly have maintained their interest, and we and and they have a range of supportive shareholders based in Perth who also have maintained their interest in this and have come into some of our raisings. So so the McCallum interest is still there in uranium long term. Peter McIntyre certainly knows it well. Uh, he's he's uh, critical on our board as to understanding in particular of the opportunities we are evaluating overseas or within Australia. He knows many of them as I do. So, so we work together in, in questioning and looking at those sort of opportunities. Uh, so they're still very supportive and we're very pleased to have them. Todd Kamova out of Melbourne has been a, a newer entrant. He came in with a capital raising in 2018. Um, Todd was, uh, and in the discussion I've had with him, he's got a good medium term interest in uranium. He's looking for commodities which will move and which will burn. And you can see from his uh, past investment expertise, that's where he's good at it and what he looks at. So we're pleased to have him in. He uh, he picked up his holdings this year um, when uh, we we uh, or our price dropped initially, and then the uranium price picked up. So he picked up his holdings a bit, and he's still in us uh, with a view to us doing some long-term things. And he's very interested in the Sapphire acquisition when we announced it, and I have a brief chat with him then. So he's uh, he's in there to see if we can make something of the company in a long way. So uh, no, we're pleased to, pleased to have him in. And we tend to, I can't remember, I've told you this before, we tend to not be totally aligned with any particular brokers. We tend to use and look at the best opportunities to bring in funds through the best teams that uh, understand where we're trying to go at the time. And so it, it's not unusual for us to have people who will come into us for a while and they like the story and then they might drop out and we'll have others come in. So we tend to keep it fluid like that and uh, as well. But we're very happy with those supportive key shareholders. And Greg, just talk about your guys' uh, your ownership and if you plan to continue to participate in future financings. Yeah, well, I certainly have been. I mean, we've, we've had um, to conserve cash. Part of the game has been to to issue shares to directors for part of their director fees. Um, we dropped our director fees by 15 or 20% in late 18 and we've kept them low. Uh, we've kept our expenses tight in, in those sort of minutes going forward. Now, my personal one, I think, is around 1.6%. Uh, I've come into a number, directly into a number of the raisings we've done, as well as obviously taking director fees and, and shares. And uh, I'll continue to do so to my ability. Remembering that I'm uh, mostly working for salary here going forward anyway, but nonetheless, I'm, I'm keen to keep coming into the company and we'll do so. Directors are around uh, 4% and management picks up a little bit up to about 5%. So we've, we've got about 5% holding. As, as you're aware, in Australia, it's not, I know, it's not always a common thing to have massive holding by directors and management. Some companies do. 
we want to have a skin in the game. By far my biggest personal holding is in Alligator. And I've always done that no matter which company I've worked for, I made sure my, my major holding is in that company. And uh, I'm keen to keep it investing in it because I see it's got a great opportunity going forward. McCallum Group combined with the Hub24 platform group out of Perth is a, is a significant shareholding. Tolga is a, a good shareholder and Lindsay Carthew out of, who came into us from Soundfire is, is one of our primary shareholders as well. Yeah, so management and directors is probably somewhere around the 9% area total. And then has there been any interest uh, about Alligator from, you know, some of these other uranium-focused funds out there? You know, there's, I can think of at least two or three in Australia, and there's certainly mm -hmm. a number of them in North America. Have there been discussions and interest with uh, some of those groups uh, looking at Alligator as well? Look, there are, there's about five or six key funds in Australia who we've talked to who do have a long-term uh, interest in uranium. Um, and we're, we're not the only company, of course, involved in and talk to, but we, we know that they have invested in some of the players in Australia. Um, they haven't come into us yet because we've been fairly small. And But this year we attracted the attention with the Sanford acquisition and I had a range of discussions with those groups. Those groups, of course, tend to come in during a capital raising because they want to get a significant holding and it's difficult to do that on market, okay? So we talk to them on the basis of what we're currently doing with Soundfire, et cetera, and, and, uh, and they're aware that, that we are looking at other acquisitions in the future. That can create some opportunity for them as well as if we're out for a capital placement. So there's about five or six that we talk to directly uh, of those funds based in Australia, some of them links overseas who are interested in learning medium term. So yeah, that, that, that interest certainly came to the fore once we announced the Sanfire acquisition in that sort of June, July timeframe and, uh, and then closed it in October. So yeah, we're keeping engaged with them as we go forward for opportunities. Well, Greg, let's move on. Let's close out. Why should potential investors who are listening look hard at Alligator Energy uh, at this point and, you know, price and stage of the company, you know, still a fairly small uranium explorer slash now developer? What would you say to folks who have cash and are looking to deploy further in uranium situations like Alligator? First of all, we really have one of the few board management and advisory teams who have discovered uranium projects, who have taken uranium projects through resource definition, into approvals and development, and managed and operated uranium mines. So we engage a team broader than just our employees, including the directors, including the key consultants we, we utilise consistently. And that experience base is, is massive. We also have a lot of links into that experience base overseas. So, for example, um, I'm engaged with two guys, one in New York, one in Denver, and helping us to look at assets uh, around the US. So we, um, we have that experience base and we understand what it takes and what it needs. The second thing is, we, as you would have heard from my conversation, we're trying to be fairly realistic about how easy or hard or what the opportunities are with these projects. Samfire is a developable asset. It's got expandability and resource. It's got already uh, high quality leach tests. We need to redo those, look at modern technology, but it's a potential developable resource. But as you heard me say, we're realistic about what these things take. But nonetheless, we'll still advance it. There are effective and efficient ways you can advance um, these projects without spending massive dollars. Environmental baseline work is not expensive to do and you need to do it properly. Community engagement uh, is not expensive to do, you need to do it properly. They form the basis of what you can do on the ground. 
And uh, with a, a shallow ISR project at 60 metres deep, it's also fairly efficient and effective to, to get the good knowledge information going forward. So we can really expand on our initial scoping work now quite cheaply. So that's a, another asset we have. It, it's cheap work at Samphire primarily. We have a brand new opportunity in ISR at Big Lake, which we have yet to test. We have long-term high-grade areas of uh, Western Arnhem with high-grade intersections we found before that we want to follow up and target regions we want to follow up. So that's a long-term game at the buoyancy of the market. And we're looking at other acquisitions. We are not going to sit still. We're small, we're experienced, we're uh, sensible in how we approach things, we're realistic in what it takes to do, and, uh, and we think we can take advantage of a significant upturn or a medium to, to long-term upturn in uranium business. And Greg, the best way for the audience to reach out to you and the company? Uh, absolutely, direct contact through uh, through my, uh, my email address on the back of any of our presentations that are online. You'll see my email addresses there and our office phone number. And once uh, any shareholders or investors contact me, I, I contact every shareholder personally. And so I'm happy to engage and talk about what we do and how we're doing it. Great chat, extensive, lots of information. I, I think that uh, anybody looking at the uranium sector and has any concern for Australia whatsoever or what's going on, I think needs to pay attention and also globally. No, it's just been a great extensive chat. Really appreciate you coming back to uh, to update the audience and to talk more about Alligator and uh, really what's become pretty fantastic acquisition. Looks great on this side and pretty dang cheap. <laughs> well, it was uh, good timing, shall we say, and uh, that, that, that's you've got to take the luck of the timing sometimes. But let, let's see how we uh, we think there's a good medium-term game plan in the market, and, and we're going to be there for it. Well, Greg, appreciate it, and uh, we'll talk again soon. Thank you very much. Thanks very much, Andrew. All the best, and all the best to your listeners.